Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Hello, this is Amy Ellis, the Director of Quality and Value-Based Care at Northwest Medical Specialties, and I will be interviewing key opinion leaders about what is being done on the ground to transform care. Today, I am speaking with Brian Kern, who is a healthcare attorney at Acadia Professional. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for being on today. I'm looking forward to hearing about your perspective in value-based care. Thank you for having me today. Can you give us a little bit about your um, background? Yeah, sure. So my my background's in medical malpractice insurance. I started with an agency right out of college, actually. And my goal was to become a healthcare attorney, actually, and Paid my way through law school. So I took a job at an agency that was just starting a niche in medical malpractice. And I went to law school at night and I ended up graduating law school and had to decide whether to go into the practice of law or into insurance. And I ended up choosing insurance. So even though I passed the bar, I decided to start to talk to some of the uh, people in the industry. And I ended up joining one of the partners in that firm. And we broke off and started our own firm called Argent. And we built Argent up. And it was, again, almost exclusively medical professional liability. And it was around the time when Obamacare was coming out. And there were the early talks of the transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. A lot of physicians were talking about merging. A lot of particularly cardiology groups were selling to hospitals. I think we, out of the similar fear that drives physicians often to consolidate, we looked to do some M&A activity ourselves and ended up going to a private equity-backed company. And that company ultimately sold. And we, well, in my case at least, I finished out my contract with that company and decided to move on. I had a two-year non-compete, so... I joined a law firm and actually got to fulfill my early dream of being a healthcare attorney. It's a really great firm called Friar Levitt, and it was a great experience because Friar Levitt sets up a lot of super groups and mega groups and clinically integrated networks all over the country. So it gave me a whole unique perspective on that side of healthcare consolidation. I also linked up with some startup companies in the mainly, you know, like tech and data analytics space, because I really wanted to see that side of things firsthand and worked with a couple companies and still do some consulting and advising with these companies. And it's really rewarding to see these companies grow, but it also gave me another unique perspective to see data analytics, tech, and all um, the, you know, predictive modeling and artificial intelligence and even blockchain come into play. So it was really cool. And what I learned was a lot of different components are necessary to successfully transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. And when my non-compete finally ran, I was able to get back into the healthcare risk space. And I joined a couple partners at Acadia Professional. So it's primarily a medical malpractice insurance agency. It's nationally 
known. We have clients all over the country, but I realized that our clients is as challenging as it is to navigate medical malpractice. What they continually seem to be struggling with was, was these value-based care and reimbursement issues. And because one of the biggest barriers, at least in my opinion, to getting into value-based care is figuring out how to handle the downside risk. We and I have spent a tremendous amount of time trying to almost create a market to help physicians wanting to get into value-based care handle the downside risk. Because Amy, as you know, in order to get these agreements, oftentimes you have to take the downside risk of patients. So this is how we've been spending our time and, uh, and it's been very exciting. Yeah, that's really interesting. So do you see, I mean, you kind of touched on this, but what, what are the opportunities that you're seeing um, for practices when it comes to, you know, two-sided risk and value-based care? Yeah, so we see a lot of them and it's, it's really cool. So the bundled payment program that the government started, BPCIA, was our first official foray into value-based care. And I say we, I linked up with a convener who wanted to get into the program. So it was almost like a pilot program for us because we didn't know enough about it and we didn't want to go into it taking too much risk or biting off more than we can choose. So we just recruited a couple, what, what are really friends, friendly physicians that we thought might be able to benefit from this program. So we recruited them and we found a really great company to be the convener to back it and a great company to run the program. And what we learned was how to navigate an extremely complicated CMS program, but we also learned that you can be very successful in the program. And what we thought was going to be more of a break-even or potentially even situation where we would lose some money turned into be very lucrative for a couple of the physicians in the program. And the savings have been tremendous. And of course, what we've learned is the more that you're able to coordinate care for patients post-procedure, the better the experience for the patient, the lower the cost, and of course, the lower the risk, which helps all around from our perspective, because we are helping to cover the downside risk. And we also think that from a general risk management perspective, it's extremely beneficial. So next enrollment period of BPCIA is right now. And we have the backing again from some well-financed companies and the same conveners going out and trying to recruit a lot more physicians because this is a unique program in that small and mid-sized practices, of course, large practices as well, but it's available to any physician specialists that do certain procedures with CMS. As you know, OCM is a program, a CMS program specific for oncologists. There's many of the same principles. I think OCM in some ways is a little more complicated. And then of course the ACOs, the population health side of things, I think is the most complicated, but the principles again are very similar. And this is Amy, what you're so incredibly skilled in the data analytics side of things. That's really the starting point. A, you have to get great data. If you have great data, it's only as useful as the person who's able to analyze it and um, use it in a way to instruct behavior. 
And of course, coming from the risk side, we are not clinicians. And it's very important that any of our physician clients or whomever we're speaking with understand that we're not trying to tell anyone how to practice medicine. We shouldn't and we don't. It's more about trying to use data to help physicians understand the cost. And if a cost is really high because there's better outcomes, that's one thing. And we would support that 100 times out of 100. But if there's a situation where there's two courses of treatment and the outcomes are exactly the same, but one is far more expensive, those are the areas that I think can be guided by data analytics. And it's not just a situation where we're trying to help physicians make money. It's a way to help the general good of the program, of course, but far more important and more specifically, often patients take on 20% of the cost of cancer care or any kind of care that they may be receiving. And that's a massive financial burden. So not only do these programs, in my opinion, generally improve patient satisfaction and give patients a better healthcare experience, but it also saves them money. So I like value-based care for that reason. I think it it needs to come a long way, but at least the principle and philosophy behind it is a very rewarding one because everyone's interests seem to be aligned through value-based care. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that, um, you know, moving into the future, you know, yes, we are potentially putting ourselves at risk, but, uh, you know, if the patient is the North Star, you're always going to be heading in the right direction. And I think that um, exactly what you're saying, BBCI and data analytics and looking at how we performed and how can we improve that, I think is definitely moving in the right direction. So here in August, practices are going to be getting their performance period four reconciliation reports. And if they did not achieve a performance-based payment in the first four performance periods of OCM, they're going to either have to leave the model or go at two-sided risk. What are your thoughts about that? Going at risk is is obviously a big decision. And it's why we've spent so much time trying to create what's really known as a stop-loss insurance market. Stop-loss has been around for a long time for capitation-type programs, and hospitals use it historically when whenever they're taking risk and it plays into captives and uh, large payers have used it, of course. But there really is no active market for stop-loss for these value-based care programs for anywhere from the small practice to the mid-size to the large medical practice. It's just not a big space. We felt it was incumbent upon us as really national leaders in the risk space to try to make this market. And it's been incredibly challenging, but we are making progress all the time. And that's that's rewarding. So as it pertains to OCM, we finally have companies willing to work with oncology practices and assume some of the downside risk. This is great because it's not a situation where you just pay a premium and then, you you know, you're almost beating the system because the market wouldn't allow that to happen over any uh, sustained period of time. What it does is it allows groups on the fence to understand what their maximum downside risk is in order to stay in the program and learn. There's tremendous benefits of OCM just by being in the program. 
the MEOS payments, um, the potential for the APM uh, advanced practice model or advanced payment model, increase in reimbursement, and of course, the upside. So it is important for practices to factor all these things in and to transform their practice in a way that is going to make them successful in these programs because those that invest the resources and frankly, Amy, have people like you, not that anyone could replace you, but have people who really understand the data and can be successful in these programs and then tie in all the other um, important factors. It's, it's not just for the success in OCM, but we think, of course, the downside risk piece is what is going to help facilitate continued participation in the program. It's also to understand how to treat a patient from start to finish away from the whole fee-for-service model. That's important because you can say Obamacare was a Democratic issue. You can say Trump care is a Republican issue, and that's fine. But both administrations have been extremely pro-value-based care. And that has always been a CMS prerogative, I should say, for the last decade or so. And it's not going away. So to us, these government programs are so important for practices to learn from and hopefully take similar models to the private payers, directly to employers, and ultimately, however, healthcare transforms from a technology, from an online buying, from any of those perspectives. This is really the beginning of, of what's going to be a major change over time. Those practices that can really learn, use the payments that they're getting to build infrastructure and be successful, should be successful for decades to come. The practices who are left outside of these programs sometimes is simply because they were too worried about the downside risk. You know, they're going to have the biggest challenges ahead. So we're trying to help as many groups as we can um, get involved in these programs and be successful. That's great. Um, so you mentioned, you know, using data to learn and improve patient care, you know, um, implementing care coordination. What are other recommendations that you would give OCM practices as they kind of move forward? So I think just being able to access CMS data is such a benefit for being in this program because you get to drill down and see which patients are experiencing complications, what areas are more costly, what referral patterns may not be beneficial from both a cost and an outcome standpoint. So that piece alone is beneficial, but sometimes that data doesn't come right away, so you can't make immediate decisions. But you can use that information to um, to guide you along the way. But also being able to really engage patients throughout the continuum of care is really a game changer. And it allows you to solicit feedback from patients in a more meaningful way because you are there from start to finish. And the care coordinators are critically important. You mentioned that as a key because if you don't know where patients are going when they leave your four walls, the program is not going to be as successful because you can't engage patients and make sure they're doing everything that's in their own best interest. So it's key to to have these care coordinators, but also to get that feedback directly from the patients and have patient satisfaction surveys 
and understand what patients really like and maybe what is frustrating for them because it could be as simple as they don't, they're not getting the information that they need in a way that makes sense to them. And sometimes it's really simple adjustments that you just don't think about because you're not getting the perspective of, from the patients. So there's a, there's a lot of um, feedback that you can get directly from patients, which really, which really can guide how you deliver care overall. And I would also say the farther down the road we get with predictive analytics and um, ultimately artificial intelligence, you know, for certain diagnoses and things, AI has come a really long way, but just more simply using algorithms and predictive analytics to try to identify those patients that may be higher risk that sometimes do get lost in the system. Again, those are the patients that are going to have bad experiences and that translates into bad healthcare but it also leads to complications. And if you tie this all the way back to my background in the risk space, those are also the patients that end up suing for my practice. So we make the entire system safer and, and we're able to close that loop. So the physicians are less at risk and the patients are having better outcomes and higher satisfaction rates. That's actually, I love the fact that you brought up the patient experience and, and the surveys because uh, we just got our Q10 feedback reports for OCM and, you know, Medicare is doing an 83-question survey on our patients and you are exactly right. We, I mean, these are thorough questions down to, you know, when you told your provider that you had fatigue, did they do anything about it type of question. Um, and, and we can make little tweaks when it comes to whether it's a chemo teach or, you know, the conversations that social work has with patients, just these little tiny changes to support the patients. Um, you know, we can do that because of these surveys and, and, you know, yes, we're getting the Medicare claims and we're actually seeing ER visits and utilization and we can make changes in that space. But the separate data that you're getting is actually the patient experience data, which I think is so important. And what I love about value-based care, and again, it's far from perfect. It has a long way to go and there's a lot of kinks to be ironed out, but we're moving more towards transparency and you're right. Unfortunately, a lot of the patient satisfaction surveys, a lot of the payer information, all of these results have been withheld from the actual professionals who are providing the care for too long. So the CMS program has become a great way for the medical practices to get the data and look at it for themselves. It also um, helps facilitate the, um, the group's own patient satisfaction surveys. You know, to hear from your payer that your patient satisfaction scores weren't good, so you didn't hit some quality metric in your contract, it, it, it's a very empty feeling, not only because, you know, you're not achieving the metrics that you set out to achieve, but also because you don't have the information behind it. And for the practices that are able to collect their own data, they're in such a better position to um, be successful in programs, whether it's directly with the private payers or in value-based care. And just being able to open this access, you know, we, the EHR issue not being interoperable is a big, big problem in healthcare. And I think the same is true with the private payers. It's, it's not 
a transparent situation, patients always say, why is it so hard to understand the cost of these procedures? Part of it is because a lot of these systems aren't talking and it's been very difficult. You know, it's, it's not fair to blame a physician why a physician can't give you a price for a procedure when there's so many different parties in play. And most of the information related to the procedure is blocked for whatever reason. This is, this is such a, a paradigm shift in that now CMS is providing this information and hopefully it'll continue to spill over into the private payer space. And the more information practices have, and this is, this is why you're so good at what you do, Amy, because you're able to pull this information from so many different sources and then use it, um, to, you know, for, for action within your practice and to improve patient care. So there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, benefits in, in just having more transparency in the system. Yeah. Well, this has been so great. I, I think that I've actually learned um, a lot on this call, and I, I think that um, there's so many different people in, in this industry, you know, people like yourself, me, uh, physicians, um, payers, so many people that have such great insight. And I think that just bringing us all together so that we can put our heads together and, and move this in the right direction, I can't thank you enough um, for being on the call today and really sharing your insight with us. Definitely. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me. I just want to thank you again for listening today. And to get in touch with the American Journal of Managed Care, you can email them at info at AJMC.com or follow the journal on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. 